0: Spanning the Nerdosphere, talking about everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films, and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia.
1: We have finally arrived. It's finally over. We're at episode 137 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. We're so glad that you voted Plus five stars across the board on iTunes.
2: I was so scared
1: of <laughs> what you were going to say. Well, we've, we've got a full five-star rating on iTunes. I think that's pretty good.
2: It is pretty damn good, but for a minute, I was in shit <laughs> with <dance> mode. <laughs> well, now it's, you don't have to change them. You can stay right where you are. Well, they might be a little soiled because I'm just sitting here like – Oh my God, he mentioned voting. Don't say it. <laughs> don't do it. Well, I don't want to intimidate you or anything now.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> 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 oh, Jesus Christ. But, you know, I, I'm lost in the arm, man. I need to, like, lose beats in my heart by you pretty much pushing me to an edge of a cliff.
1: That is true. Taking years off of Nick's life, I'm James Witham alongside. The still petrified, big <laughs> God, you're a fucking asshole. No, well, you know, sometimes it just—I just come by it honestly, and that's just, <laughs> this is just one of those moments. A lot of
2: people notice that we, don't, like, we, you know, when James opens every show, I don't know what's going to come out of his mouth. <laughs> so part of me is like, fifty percent okay, what's he going to say? And then the other fifty is like, okay, how am I going to react? So it's kind of like thinking of a clever quip or a joke, but the other part's like, oh, God, oh, God, what's he going to say? See, oh, no. See, this is why we have a five-star rating. It's the
1: spontaneity of, of of not knowing what's coming, the genuine reaction that follows, right?
2: Right? Right. right. <laughs> Speaking of five stars, something we talked about last week that's really – Five stars a Star Trek boldly go. We got to talk to Mike Johnson last week, who, of course, is the wonderful writer of that series.
1: Man, he's just such a genuine fan, too. I mean, sometimes you you don't really want people who are just diehard fans of something to work on it because they're going to just see their vision and that's it. But the way he talked about how... He is actually working with the people that are doing the Star Trek movies as well. And they kind of, you know, hey, is this okay with each other? And, you know, they want to tell a story that kind of interconnects and make the comics matter along with the movies. I think that that's just really cool. And I think it shows, but it's it also allows Mike as a writer to go deeper into the story that's being told in the movies and make comics that people actually want to use to help them follow that storyline.
2: Right, and not only that, but as we mentioned last week, if you haven't seen Star Trek Beyond, you can still dive into this issue, this you know, this, this series. Right, of course, issue two came out this week, so I mean, you know, you look at that and you just say to yourself, "Oh, I can just dive into this series and not be lost because you know it's just it's great. It's great when you have a writer like Mike who can do that and make that transition, you know." So, so smooth and not make it seem like you missed out on anything or missed anything of, of importance because it's just throwing you into this world and you're like, oh, okay, I know where everything's going now.
1: Right exactly and i mean not to mention let's talk about the art too about how you you feel like you're looking at the characters on the screen in the book too and i think that that's so important Continu- continuity can be so important and i'm glad that they made that a point of emphasis and idw i think just does that so well with a lot of their properties making sure that if it's an if it's an adaptation type book and if it exists in a world that is on a screen that it that you get that visual sense of that in the comic that goes with it as well
2: and speaking of continuity, come up next, we have two new comics this week. What are we reviewing? Well, you stay tuned to find out, because what we're reading is coming up next.
0: Hi, this is Ryder Mike Johnson, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Well, it's that time, nerds. We pull out our long boxes, and then we discuss what we're reading this week. So, James, you know, a while back on the show, you did the first crossover Iw did with DC, which was, of course, Batman, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. I decided, you know what? I'm going to do the second one. So this week I decided to do Batman Team and T Adventures number one. Of course, from IAW now it's written by Matthew K. Manning. The art is done by John Samariva. The inker is Sean Parsons. And colors done by Leonardo Ito. Now, as I said, this is a, a crossover again with Batman Team and T. But the thing is with this issue is it's called... The face of two worlds and the reason why I mentioned that is because and this is a spoiler possibly, so don't get mad at me, but it's the only way I can really describe the book and how these two worlds converge without you know seeming too bland. So pretty much there's a portal that is discovered in the book. And what the portal does is it one end it's the sewers in New York City where the turtles are, on the opposite end, Gotham City. Okay. And so you get this idea of where these two portals are. And so you start off with the Tangent Ninja Turtles, and again, they're in New York City. And I will say this, the one turtle that really shines in this is Michelangelo, because his humor really does work really, really well. I mean, he's doing some Batman lines. He's doing some he's you know, he mentioned how he's on a superhero kick. So he's doing like you know certain lines like that from from famous uh, comic book characters who are superheroes. And the thing about this is it works is because this is not like the main turtles run. What they look like this is more the Nickelodeon style turtles. And so it's, it has a little bit of a kid vibe to it, but not really. It as it's kind of like an in between, which is nice. But so the kind Bat- of like
1: Batman the animated series, then.
2: And that's why I wanted to say because Batman, the Batman we get and the villains we get in this look exactly and actually are the same style as they are in the Batman the animated Ooh, series. Oh, I like that. And and the why I want to say is this is why I want to talk about the art because the art by Sumariva and even the colors when you go between the two worlds, the turtles world is different, like, it looks different from the Batman world, meaning the Turtles world looks more turtle esque it looks more kind of, you know, not kiddish, but for lack of a better term, kiddish, you know, easier kind of thing. You get to the Batman world, it's so reminiscent, it feels reminiscent of Batman the Animated Series, but the thing about the art, what's so brilliant about the art is, it's not like night and day. It's different but you notice it a little bit like it has a little bit of noticeability so as you're not taken out of it which is great the transitioning between the two Gotham and, and, and New York City where the turtles are it really really does meld really really well and what I like about the story is this takes place pretty much where again there's this portal and while this is more of a setup this issue is not a whole meat of a story in the sense this is more of a setup. Uh, when you see how these worlds might interact with one another, this adds a sense of, ooh, this next issue is going to be very interesting and talking about issue two because of who they have, the final page. The villains that they have in that, very interesting. interesting. Very, very interesting. And what's interesting is this, to use a video game reference, if you play DC Universe versus Mortal Kombat, it kind of has that bit of a vibe to it. And... It's really cool, and I love what IDW is doing. I think that their crossovers are amazing, uh, and the thing is too is you know if you're somebody who of course reads other turtle runs, you read the the uh, Team and T universe by Paul Aller, you know it's more of a serious, a little more uh, mature tone. This isn't too kiddish. This is right in the middle. This is right in the center where you want to be, as you mentioned. It has the tone of Batman the animated series because the Batman in this. You know, there's a scene with him and Alfred, Batman. As we don't see him do much of, we see him smiling, maybe cracking a joke or two in Mm -hmm. here. But it's really nice. The writing is great. The world building is fantastic. The art, again, by Sumireva and Parsons and Ito, is just really, really fascinating. It's groundbreaking, I think, because again, you're you've they found a perfect way to meld the animation style of the animated series with the kind of Nickelodeon-esque while Nickelodeon show is, you know, 3D animated, you know, you have these kind of turtles who, you know, look, uh, you know, younger and, and more youthful in a sense, um, but it, it works. Like, this whole story works, and the thing with the story is when you see it, I can't really get too much more into the story because it would spoil things, but the turtles do have an encounter with a Batman villain, and the encounter is pretty great, and again the the one turtle in this who, who really shines is Michelangelo because throughout this whole thing you know he's doing you know the, the joking around and kind of getting this one villain off guard and what it's I love again is that the villains in this, especially the Batman ones, are very reminiscent of the animated series.
1: yeah, and I think crossing this turtle's world with that Batman, the animated series world is something that was almost like a light bulb like why haven't we been doing this all along? Because those two worlds, to me, seem like, vibe-wise, they would mesh together really well. So I'm glad to hear that that's exactly what's happened with this series.
2: Well, what's great is that you have the Batman anime series, which is a little bit more mature, to use it, to, for lack of a better term. And then you have the Turtles here, which are, again, the more Nickelodeon-style And they're more fun. You know what I'm saying? So you have that that nice mixture of fun and seriousness with the book where it's not too much one way or too much towards another way. You know, this works really well. And, and again, Manning does a really good job of balancing out the characters. Uh, He does a really good job of balancing out uh, just the tone overall. The, the jokes in here do land. They don't seem forced at all. There were a lot of moments where I was chuckling and laughing. Uh, the interactions are fantastic. This is an overall pull for me. Again, my book is T- Batman T Adventures number one from IAW. You have to go get this book. Put it in your poll. It's fantastic.
1: Well, this week, Nick, I decided to go with something that we found out about St. San Diego Comic-Con, or actually right before, from Boom Studios. And as a lifelong wrestling fan, you know I was going to talk about WWE then, now, and forever number one from Boom. Now, I'm going to need a second, because I took a village to write this book, and there's a reason for it. <laughs> so let me get the, I'm just going to list all the writers and before all the artists.
2: Dive, before you dive into that, when you open the book, do like pyrotechnics like blast out of the comic pages I, like I, I
1: wish I mean if there was like a one page like pop up of pyro I think that that would have been <laughs> that would have been pretty cool you know not it's, like literal pyro because you know
2: we, it's, we'd it's, like it's, to keep our site but right well that and it's also you know it's, it's paper and stuff like that so paper kind of burns with yeah. fire but, you know, imagine it, they turn it, oh I really would wish this could be an audio book and they have the narration done by Jr.
1: Or you flip the page and the entrance music starts playing. Oh yes, <laughs> yes, stealing that. Thank you very much. That should happen.
2: But you know, before um, I rudely interrupted you with my paratechnic joke. Uh, Talk about who did this book. (laughs) Well, the main run, if
1: you would consider a main run, it was done by Dennis Hopeless. Ross Thibodeau also wrote another stretch. Rob Schamberger also did art and writing for his little piece. And Derek Friedolfs also did the same thing for his little piece. Also, other art done by Rob Gilroy and Daniel Bayless. Now, the reason I say that is because there's a main run in here. It's actually done by Hopeless and Mora that goes into the breaking up of the shield and how that all happened. Now, if you're a wrestling fan, you already know about that. So it's almost like a behind-the-scenes story, and there's a lot of real-life stuff in there, and I say real-life based on what you saw on the screen that, that went down on Raw and on SmackDown. That was in the book, so they kind of put pieces of that in there, but they also gave like a like a oh well here's what was going on when they were outside of the ring and how, they tried what they tried to do is they tried to take the story out of the ring and go and put the story of like why did Seth Rollins do what he did and how did that come about that's what they were exploring in this main
2: story so this approach feels like. <clears throat> When you play like an older, even now, like a wrestling video game, you have the story mode. So it kind of is that, is that what it kind of feels like it's like a story mode version of a video game.
1: In that sense, but what what they're doing is is they take the story not just in the ring and and, and around the ring where you would see in a normal wrestling show. They take it completely outside the realm oh, of really? wrestling itself. Like there's like Seth Rollins goes somewhere that. Um, that Dean Ambrose and Roman Reigns think is kind of suspicious. So they follow him kind of thing, which is not a spoiler in the book. And that leads to something and it makes sense. So it's almost like you're furthering the storyline that was already there by writing a backstory that was the meat of it that led you to the end result. So it was really interesting that they decided to do that.
2: See, now that reminds me of actually, to, to <clears throat> use some real world terminology, you know, back I believe it was like the early 2000s or the late 90s. When, remember when WWE New York was a thing? Yeah, it's kind of like you know you had wrestlers go from Madison Square Garden to using the arena, and they would just like you know fight from like throughout the streets of New York, whatever, or just walk to WWE New York kind of thing. You know, which was a people didn't know. I believe it was kind of like a WWE restaurant or some sort of club they had. In they, New York. they
1: they had a they had like a um, you know they have like ESPN Zone. It was like that. Yeah, that's WWE what it was in New York. Wrestling. Yeah.
2: And so, I mean, that's what it seems like. So I'm glad that they're actually taking it out of the arena and actually using, you know, other buildings and other places uh, to build this. So, it's, so pretty much it's kind of like a nice blend of uh, a story arc you would see on a, you know, Raw or a SmackDown Mix a little bit with some real-world elements.
1: Right, exactly. That's exactly what they're doing. They're taking what you saw on the screen and giving you a little bit of that, but then also taking the, okay, well, when we weren't watching what was happening kind of thing, and they they give you a story. That goes along with it, So I thought that was really interesting. They also included, by the way, the uh, San Diego Comic-Con one pages that they handed out there. So you can see those, you know, like Undertaker, uh, The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, stuff like that. There is a comic strip version of like Tugboat and Earthquake that's just <laughs> – if you, if you are a fan of that era like I was, yep. that will just – you will smile. It's very short, very, very short. You will smile through that whole thing. There's also a little like strip version of the uh, of the New Day. Uh, there's a story for Sasha Banks in there as well. So there's a lot of that's why it's called Then, Now, and Forever. You get some of the then with you know what happened with 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 uh, with what happened with the Shield. You've got the now with the Sasha Banks and the New Day stuff, and the forever where you take it even further back than that. So I got to tell you, man, as a wrestling fan. You know, I, I went out once I realized, okay, this is really how they're doing it and I like it. Now, if you're not a wrestling fan, obviously, this book's probably not for you because you're not going to care about what's going on. But if you were a wrestling fan, this is definitely a pull for you because they give you something that you. Kind, you kind of wondered you know obviously you know that, that this that, that wrestling is fake I think we all know that right but you get caught up in these storylines and sometimes you want more you're like why could I wish I could see why Seth Rollins decided to do this because wish- you allow yourself to get caught up in that storyline you know it's not real but you care because it's just like any other good show it's a good story you would you want to know more about it.
2: I wish I found out why Stone Cold Steve Austin sided Dallas the entire McMahon family and beer during the Attitude Era. And we might get that. That's just it. We don't know where these stories are necessarily
1: going to go. That's something we might actually get. I'm hoping that they kind of do that. And to think about it that way, there is a giant laundry list of things that they could do. This thing could go on then now and forever if they really wanted it to. This could be like an action comics type deal where we're talking about issue 900 at some point because there's so many things that they could do. And if Dennis Hopeless keeps writing it like this and you get other great people involved as well that I mentioned earlier, I got to tell you, man, this is going to be a poll for a long
2: time. Well, not only that, but real quick, you know, WWE has been around for decades and generations, so you have so many characters you can pull from. I mean, you wanna go back as far as, you know, Andre the Giant and you know, Doink the Clown and, and, right. and you know, Brent the Hitman Hart and, and stuff like that to, you know, current day, you know, Seth Rollins and stuff like that, to even like I said, back in the attitude era, Godfather, Degeneration X, D Lo Brown, Mark Henry, uh the list goes on and on and on. You know, it'd be very interesting to see what they do and how they, you know, interact and stuff like that. It would be really, really cool to see.
1: There was a Dusty Rhodes one page in here.
0: So I'm I'm like, a, a
1: wow! Moment. You got Dusty Rhodes in there. They're they're leaving no stone unturned, man. They're really not. And you see a lot of the characters that you love. You're if you're a wrestling fan, you got to have this. I'm telling. I'm you. telling
2: you right now, man if Dusty Rhodes' Son of a Plumber is not a comic, or at least some sort of like a one-shot or an annual, like, that, that's a missed opportunity. Like, can you imagine just... And even in audio, like, like, I know he's passed, but, I mean, you know, Dusty Rhodes' Son of a Plumber, issue number one.
1: Right, exactly. And what I didn't mention is this is an oversized issue. The whole... The S.H.I.E.L.D. story is a 20-page story. <laughs> and, then you get, and then you get the extra stuff. Plus, there's a ton of variant covers for this. I mean, they've got, they've got variants with... With Stone Cold, they've got one for The Rock, Triple H, Undertaker. So, I mean, if you're a fan of one of those, find the variants at your local shops, and then there you go.
2: So, pretty much to quote Paul Bear, you're saying, Oh, yeah! Get the Undertaker! (laughs) Oh, let me tell you something, Mr. Comic Book Reader. When my Undertaker gets his own panel... You're going to love that you bought this book. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> and then you've got old school Kane. Where's my variant car? <laughs> <laughs> I remember
2: that. Oh, the oh, God. oh, that's a tangent in and of itself. Uh,
1: We could go on forever, man.
2: Yes, yes. And but, that's uh, the point of this book, honestly, and that's why it's a poem. And you are probably wondering who aren't wrestling fans like, why is Nick talking like that? Why is Nick talking like a heavy set man who sounds like he's orgasming? Well, that's kind of how Paul Bearer talked. He, YouTube and, it. Yes. YouTube he was it. pretty much an overweight man who talked like he was having an orgasm. When he said, I'll never forget this, one of the things he said in
1: an interview, and I'm sure it was ad libbed, was when he said, I'm Paul Bearer and you're not, I lost it. I lost it. <laughs> 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 I couldn't handle it. And then he did like this little shimmy walk away. And if you've seen Paul Bear ever. <laughs> he has a waddle. He fucking waddles. It's, it's, <laughs> you can't unsee it. And it's one of the greatest things. If there's a, if there's an animated GIF of this, I want it. I have to find it. There has to be. I will find it and post it somewhere. I don't know where, but I want it.
2: The urn, the urn's just like a, it's not like a, it's not like just like a regular urn. It's like a cookie jar you find out or something like that. He has snacks in there.
1: Yep, I mean, hey, you never know. You <laughs> never know. WWE ice cream bars. That's what's in there. <laughs>
2: this is kind of fucked up because he's dead. But I mean, this, is, this is actually kind of fucking hilarious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Anytime you have
1: to preface it with "because he's dead," that's probably not the best thing in the world.
0: <laughs> oh,
2: <yeah. laughs> oh, oh, but that's gonna do it for our reviews this week. We're so going to fucking hell after this show. Oh my god! <laughs> well, I mean, we've got the Undertaker, so that that's, that, you know, that that's is gonna be true. A trip. That is true. But come next. Oh, man, we're heading back into the Marvel Cinematic Universe with a review of Doctor Strange.
0: This is comic book writer Jackson Landon, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Well, it's time that we entered the mystical realms of the Marvel Universe and start turning buildings on their side and upside down and in little swirly patterns because, Nick, it's time to for our very much spoiler filled review of Marvel's Doctor Strange.
2: Yeah, and hopefully you wore a seatbelt like a roller coaster when you were watching this because would you ever get like that vertigo but just, you know dizzy at any point during this? I did, man, and I never
1: usually do. But then I also had this thought thinking, you know, I wonder what would happen if the ancient one was the head of, like, housing and urban development? <laughs> you know, just rebuilding neighborhoods in the image uh, of the of the multiverse and all this stuff. You don't like a building? Well, I'll just flip it on its side and, you know, do that little thing where it redoes all the walls and stuff. I mean, hey, that's one way to change a
2: neighborhood. Right, and, and when we do this review, I want to first <coughs> point out the positives and then we'll work on the negatives. So positive as you mentioned the ancient one, the anger and the outrage of people saying, "How could you t- cast Tilda Swinton in this role?" Well, really, when you see what Marvels did did in this movie, is they made their their main headquarters more of like a multicultural center where you had people of all different walks and races and genders in one spot. So I yep. think having somebody who's Celtic. You know, be looking over this thing. I think it's fine because again, you there was no lack of any one actor or actress in this. So I I think people really blew it way too much out of proportion.
1: They really did, and not to mention the fact that she was very, very good and very level headed in the role. And I think that that was an amazing thing. But I mean, there were also other great people in that. I mean, Mordo was fantastic. Wong was great. Right. I loved Wong, and everybody just worked together. I mean, even uh, during the movie when they were talking about Benjamin Bratt being there at the at the Sanctum, I mean, so now you've got a Latin American that was also there. So I think it was good that it's one of those things where, okay, like you said, and you hit it right on the head, man. It's a multicultural center of, of sense to go and learn these mystical arts, and you, gra- you grabbed somebody from a lot of different uh, walks of life. So I think that that was a
2: good job by Marvel. Exactly. I think, of course, you know. Let's start off as well. <clears throat> Continuing with the casting of Benedict Cumberbatch, I think he. You want to talk about someone who can grab that that Stephen Strange? I know a lot of people are saying, "Well, it was just Iron Man, you know, Tony Stark." But Mystic, yeah, that's what Doctor Strange was in the comics. Yep. He was brash. He was arrogant. You know, we saw in the movie. You know, he, he, he's being saying, "Do you want to work on this person? This person?" And he's like, "Nope, not challenging enough." Even though he could save, well, that's the thing. Like, even though he can save a life and change a life. He wants the type of surgeries and the type of, of procedures yep. that are, like, going to give him the fame and the glory and, and challenge him. And that adds to his assholessness.
1: Yeah, did I catch an Easter egg in there, too? Wasn't one from Rody Yeah. Yeah, so he actually could have saved Rody Well, not saved him, but you know what I mean. Um, and I'll how much is then. that going to play a factor later on once he gets involved in some of the other movies and stuff? That that might come to fruition. I mean, Benjamin Bratt was already upset with him saying, hey, I had an appointment with you, you wouldn't even see me kind of thing. Imagine what it's going to be like when Tony Stark meets him for the first time.
2: Right, and also, here's the thing as well, which I like, and a lot of people are saying this was the pretty much the best part of the movie, was it's, it was visually stunning. I think it's literally yeah. the most visually stunning marvel movie to date i think it's actually one of the most visually stunning movies uh in the past five to ten years i think and it's just amazing and uh you know when when dr strange is going on that trip of his that's kind of like when i lost i was getting a little bit dizzy i'm like oh god it's like it's stopping it's going it's going left it's going right Mm -hmm. it's spinning you know it's it's like it's kind of like a a Roller coaster version of the scene of Willy Wonka when they're going through the tunnel. (laughs) Right?
1: (laughs) Right? I mean, that's pretty much what it was. It was crazy, man. I mean, I was okay at first, and then about halfway through, I'm going, oh boy, the nachos were a huge mistake.
2: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I shouldn't have had that second icy. Oh, God.
1: Oh, it's because it was just twisting and turning and I get it. I mean, you painted a great visual picture there, man. So, I mean, they did a very, very good job with that, and I'm thinking they spent more money on this one scene for for Doctor Strange than they probably did the entire season of Agents of right. S.H.I.E.L.D.
2: <laughs> and, and something that's interesting about this movie, too, is that the Eye of mode we know, is the Time Stone. It's the yep. Time Gem, which, of course, is part of the Infinity Gauntlet. And a lot of people, I'm actually interested in seeing what happens here, especially going into Infinity War, because you have... The Eye of Agamotto, which a lot of people were kind of upset that it was going to be, you know, it seems to be powered at least possibly by the Time Stone, mm-hmm. and people are like, "Well, that takes the magic part out of the Eye of Agamotto." So, what are you telling me that in Infinity Wars, we all know at one point Thanos is going to have the entire Gauntlet full of gems that the Eye of Agamotto is not going to be usable? It's going to pretty much negate a lot of strange stuff in a sense and, and and in terms of the magic possibility. So, I think that's that's a that's a, a, a an issue. I think that's valid um with this but overall i think that when you saw the you know using of the magic and you saw how people were you know going from one place to another again the visuals were visually Mm -hmm. visually stunning i think that the magic portion of it and the thing about this too was that i think it really mean, scott derrickson did a great job directing this i think that overall um this really had a tone of a movie that you felt was like an ancient, had an ancient tone to it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you're watching this and you're like, okay, there's a point where you slip out and you're like, oh wait, this is in modern times, but because of the settings, because of what they're practicing and and everything else, the way people are dressed, uh, you know, this is, It feels like a period piece in a sense. Right, and you even
1: have that scene where Rachel McAdams says, you know, what are you wearing? Like, it was that odd. Well, that should tell you how well they did in making it kind of a period piece because it was a step outside of time. And and, and even though we're in modern times, they were in an area that really was not. And even in the sanctums as well, the insides of the sanctums anyway, really was not. So I think they really did a good job in capturing that. And going back to what you were saying about the eye of Agamotto, I mean, I guess you needed magic to open it. I mean, I guess that's part of it, but yeah, the stone being there, I think that will be a very interesting thing that they're going to need to address at some point.
2: Yeah. And you look at this and something we haven't talked about yet. I mean, you touched on him earlier, is of course, uh total edge playing Baron Moto. And, you know, I think that one thing that they did really well in this movie, I think was they, they left that, thing of, of what I like in movies especially ones where you know at some point a good person is going to go bad for one reason or another is they give you that sense of hope and optimism of like you know what maybe Mordo the reason why he defects isn't such mm-hmm. a bad reason you know she is pulling you know the ancient one is pulling from the dark dimension and stuff like that and using you know dark powers and stuff like that to to live a longer life you know so, if, so there's a point where you're watching this where I was watching this and I was like he has a point Yep. and then that's of course until he decides hey you know what I'm gonna be the only sorcerer here I'm gonna start you know taking away people's magic and stuff like that and and, and, and be the one ruler that's the problem that's when you, you turn that but for the most part they made him you know in a sense a mentor and stuff like that you mm-hmm. know it's, it's Mordo I think is Marvel's version of Sinestro where you who had this guy who was a green Lantern then he defects for some odd whatever reason and then he becomes his own uh, his own entity, his own core, if you will. So I mean, that's what Mordo. The way I see him is this, uh, in Doctor Strange. And again, I think that the the chemistry between. Benedict Cumberbatch and Four was fantastic. I think that you felt that these people, they weren't yep. rivals. You felt kind of like there was a little bit of a student-teacher thing. But again, you, as the we movie went on, you saw these people like Doctor Strange is learning these things very quickly. All these spells and like, how can you do this? And how could you so quickly and learn this? There's a little bit of, of jealousy in that area. So so it starts off with a little bit of jealousy, and then it becomes betrayal. And again, I've, I love the fact that there is that sense of like, you know, I can see where this this guy who we know is going to be evil, we see the reasoning why, why it's, it's legit, a legit reason. And there's a, self, a little bit of self-blame there, because if it wasn't for Mordo,
1: I mean, the ancient one casts Strange out, basically – wasn't going to let him back in, because, you know, she was worried that he was too much like Cassilius, and it was Mordo that said, I think you need to give this guy a chance, so then he brings him in, and then all of those things you mentioned happens, and that's how, you know, that's one of the things that kind of gets him to his breaking point, but I actually think one of the best things about this movie, if not the best thing, other than the visuals, of course, was the way that they evolved Mordo's character from what we saw in the beginning to what we saw in the end credits scene, They made every little bit make sense. They made you think, like you said, okay, this guy's got a point. And then you get him to that breaking point area, but they did it in such a smooth way. It was just really great because you could actually see as the movie goes on that transition. You didn't want to see it because of how good he was in the beginning, but then once it actually happened, I think it made you appreciate it more. So that's something that Marvel has not really done well in the past with some of their Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, but with Baron Mordo, I think they did a great job of getting him to
2: that point and setting up a future movie and you know from there i want to transition to some of the negative aspects we saw of the movie and starting with what you just mentioned with the end credit sequence listen we're what three phases in now with the no. marvel cinematic universe the end credit sequences they're not that special anymore no they're not. It, it needs to stop, actually. The, the, the scene with Mordo, and again, this is a spoiler-filled review, but the scene with Mordo, he steals the magic from the man who is paralyzed. I'm like, that could have been thrown in towards the end of the movie. Like, you didn't need to wait to sit through the credits. And then there's the thing with Thor, which ties into the Ragnaroks. So and now we're like, oh, Odin is on Earth now. And, you know, apparently Loki's there, too. So it's like, well, wait a minute. Like, I saw the Dark World. You know, Loki yeah. was on Odin's throne, so yeah. did, like, Loki banish Odin to Earth? What the hell? Like, there's a lot of certain things where I wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like the one, of course, that kicked off the MCU where Nick Fury is telling Tony Stark, I want to tell you about the, in the Avengers initiative. You know, I think that over time you see these, these end cred sequences, and really what they are is they're just, they're, they're I know they're teases to future movies, but I think that, in the case of like, I want to especially talk about the Baron Moto one. Doctor Strange two is not going to come out for at least two to three years. Yeah, you're not so, going to remember that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I mean, it doesn't stick out. You know what I'm saying? No. And, and I and the thing is, is like you know, tease the next one because I believe Thor Ragnarok's the next one coming out. Ragnarok see?
1: is the next one. Yes.
2: Okay. Yes, I'm I'm pretty sure you're right on that. So I mean, it, it, they're just not. I don't know. What, I, the thing is, I'm not going to sit here and say you know I know Marvel should do to the make them special because I don't know. I don't know how. You make them more special, maybe you <sighs> make them more grand or or, or something. I you don't gotta know. make
1: them mean something, and they're not right now. They're just not. I mean, Deadpool's was funny. I know that that's not MCU, but it's it's a Marvel movie. But that that one at least was funny and was worth waiting for. But with. It seems like everything with the MCU, you're not giving us anything like what they gave us in Civil War with Bucky. It's like, okay, we kind of knew that already, kind of thing, you know? Right. You're not really setting up anything other than Black Panther and Cap saying, are we cool? Yeah, we're cool. I'll keep your boy on ice, kind of thing.
2: Right. And, and, I mean, going back to the Deadpool one, and again, we know it's Fox, we know it's not, you know, MCU, but that was important because he mentioned, like, hey, Deadpool 2, we're going to have cable. Like, you know, right. made an announcement, you know what I'm saying? It was it was a fourth wall breaking. We're here, you know, Deadpool 2 is going to be coming and we're going to have cable and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, later on in the show we're going to talk about, you know, Fox moving around and possibly rebooting the X-Men franchise. But, I mean, you look at, at just the end credit sequences. I mean, I was in the theater, man. People were just, even, I, I was in the room, I could tell. People had Marvel shirts on and yeah. DC comic book shirts, nerd shirts. They knew. They knew what's at the end of these things. And they walked out. It was like me... It was like a a theater full of, I want to say, 40 people. Uh, This was on Friday. And at least 20 to 25 walked out, knowing that there were scenes afterwards. Wow. Yeah.
1: That's got to tell you all you need to know, man. You need to either make them special or make it stop. Now I realize it's a way to sit through the credits and you know, then you get to see everybody that's involved. But most people aren't paying attention to that. I appreciate I appreciate every single person that goes into making
2: one of these movies, especially one like Doctor Strange. It's just so visually stunning and so involved, you know. Makes sense. Like I've seen somebody who has done worked on on films before and has done, you know, different positions from, you know, director of photography to grip and stuff like that, you know. It's kind of a backhanded compliment, because it's kind of like, yeah, people are going to sit through and see my name in the credits. Oh, wait, they're only seeing doing it because they want to see the scene. That's gonna right, exactly. So, so you're not really accomplishing that either.
1: So I just, I don't see the point. You want to do a mid-credit? Go ahead.
2: I, I see yeah. that. But a mid-credit
1: and an end-credit, when they did one, it made it special. Now you're doing two. How long is it going to be before we've got, you know, a third of the way through, we get one, and then we get three of them. It's, it's just,
2: it's time to stop. It's just not special anymore, guys. Or make it matter. Right. But, I mean, you know, going to another problem of this film was, and again, this carries something that Marvel's had a problem with for a long time, is the villain problem. I want to start off with Cassius because he, for the most part, was the quote-unquote main villain. Mads Mikkelsen, great actor. Yep. What about Hannibal? Phenomenal. He was great in Casino Royale. I love him. You did nothing with him in this. I nope. mean, I'm saying you as in Marvel. They, they, When you have a talent like Mads Mikkelsen... Use him and give him something. He felt, Cassilius did for the entire time, he felt like a lackey, really. He didn't feel like, not even second command, he felt like, you know, third, fourth rank uh, it, to Dormammu. Right. And, and, and I'm like, so I'm watching this, I'm like, he just, the way he's being played and the way that his screen time and and, and how he's being portrayed and how he's written, it could have been for like, you know, a third in command kind of guy. Well,
1: you say written, he ran
2: more than he spoke in this movie. True. I mean I mean you got if I'm you like you lie. said, you got a
1: great actor like that, harness that. Use that. You're wasting every,
2: a good talent. No not only that, but every time I look at his face and I see his purple eyes, I'm like, Oh, he looks like a stripper who just sneezed in his face. I mean it's just I don't I don't understand him. Well even
1: been uh, strange said, Look at your face, man. This is the guy you want to follow kind right. of thing. So uh, it's you're right, they wasted him, and, and you see a name like that, and I hope they don't make the same mistake in Rogue One.
2: Right.
1: Uh, you know, I hope that he means more in that movie, but uh, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm with you. I think that they, they completely wasted our time with him, and I would say the same thing with Rachel McAdams. I have no idea why she was in this movie.
2: Well, McAdams... No, like any,
1: any actress could have played that role, if you ask
2: yeah, me. Yeah, but I think it was more... I, lo- I will say this, I liked what they did with McAdams, where they didn't make... I liked that they didn't have... They used her more as like a Pepper Potts... Where she wasn't really the the main focus, she wasn't. You know what I'm saying? Like she wasn't like the pride in. She didn't feel pride in it for a love story aspect. It was more like we're just friends or we we, we were dating right. and stuff like that. So she was there. I don't think she's going to be like a Natalie Portman's kind of thing. I I, I, I get think that. It.
1: That's not my issue with
2: it. I yeah. get that. I actually think
1: as far as the character goes, it was a it was a. Necessary character. I just don't think you needed to go shell out the cash to have somebody like Rachel McAdams play her.
2: But then again, this is remember we talked about this when it was the movie was in production and it was announced. Like, hey, this is you know you get to the bottom of the well here. You do need to, to get these big name True. actors, and I True. understand we just talked about like, you know Matt Smithson not being used and, and, and stuff like that. But I think that. You have to use them in a certain way. I think Mick Adams, She went into this knowing. I mean, I would think that before she signed on, she read the script, and I think she was okay with this because, again, the character in the comics, from what I believe, uh, is not that major of a character. True, and that's true as well. So again, I'm glad. I'd rather have McAdams in there, and because again, with her and Mick- Mickelson's different, because Mickelson was the villain. Like he was so supposed to be the antagonist. McAdams was not really the love interest, but she was kind of like, I'd say more of the friend, like you know, kind of thing. So, I mean, having her in there for what they did, I think it's fine. But a character I felt that didn't need to be in here, or I think should have been handled way differently, uh, was Dormammu. And I said it when we were talking about this movie months ago. I said, Dormammu's gonna be in this movie. He's gonna be in this movie some some way. I understand that some people are talking about saying, well, I'm glad that, you know, it wasn't like he beat him with his fists, he beat him with just, ignoring like, him. But in a sense, I'm like, that's no different, really, than the dance-off at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Um, and my thing is, Dormammu is a guy like Thanos, where he is a villain you build up to. So if you want to have Cassilius in the first movie, fun. Make him the primary thing. But make Dormammu, if you're going to have him in here, make him the entity. Like, just show the logo on the forehead or right. some sort of, like, thing, you know? Don't show him. Wait, and then you can have Mordo in the second one, and then you can reveal him in the second one when Mordo, you know, joins up with him and stuff like that.
1: Right, you can put him in the end credits, Singer, as a matter of fact. Yeah! Show him in the end credits, and you know, okay, that's what's coming. And I knew that they did that with Mordo, so, you know, Mordo's coming and all that stuff, and I agree with you. I think, while it was clever, the device he used to, quote-unquote, defeat Dormammu, my biggest problem was, was it, hey, I want to make, I'm here to make an offer, now don't you come back here right, and ta- make sure you take your people back with you because i don't want to now don't you come back again it's, it's, dormammu
2: it's, it's kind of like when a mo- when a mom puts their hand on the hips and they're like okay timmy you can have one cookie but i don't want you to see you back in this kitchen until supper time right you know, exactly it's like, yeah because like really like strange listen He's Dormammu, you know, from the comics. That's not going to happen. So I think that line could have been taken out. Again, we, we were talking about this, texting about this last night. Uh, you know, it's like it's like Batman saying, "Okay, Joker, promise me you won't escape from Arkham again. Promise me you won't light that school bus full of orphans on fire. Right.
1: Promise me." Right now, Poison Ivy, you
2: promised you'd stop growing funky plants in your apartment. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, like. Okay, Mr. Freeze, you promised not to make any more poison popsicles. Right, exactly. I'm trusting you.
1: I mean, so that was kind of lame, man. I it's mean, very come naive. on. It's a,
2: very, it's a very naive way to handle a villain. And he's not a naive character. You didn't no. even
1: establish that. It's exactly the opposite. So when you, when you tell what's possibly the most evil entity in your rogues gallery to just chill and go away, I mean, come on. Right.
2: But, but I mean, again, I look at him and, and it's kind of the reason why, how he defeats him with, by said, you know, reliving that one moment over and over again. I, I look at that and I think to myself, I'm, I'm mixed because I'm like, yeah, he would have been killing Strange over and over again. But then again, it's kind of like when you have like McDonald's every day or ice cream every day, you get, you can tend to get tired of it. Your taste buds are like, okay, we need something different. So I understand it, but again, it's, it's it's like I would have saved him for for being that like outside entity, and that's 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 just my take on that. I agree with that, uh, but I think that's is that anything else we may have missed in our I, I, I think we kind of covered it,
1: man. I mean, I think I think we hit all the bases, and I think the Dormammu thing is the is the main thing. I
2: mean, I think that oh, I know what I want to talk about uh, real quick. There's two things in this movie that I think were a problem. Um, the first being. I wish we had more time with Stephen Strange before the accident. Yeah, me too. Um, because the way Cumberbatch was playing him, the way that he was, everything that happened between him texting and driving and causing the accident, all the surgeries he has in his hands. I felt it was very quick. And I felt that like, hey, we need to develop. I mean, we know he's a douche and he's a dick. But he was very interesting. Like that that, that pre-incident Stephen Strange was very mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I wish we had more of that. I felt that you know, you know, this movie about like one, almost two, about two hours long. Uh, just a share, just a hair shy of two hours, yeah. Like they could have been maybe another five to ten minutes given on that. On yeah, I would have taken that type of character. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing was. A lot of people you've even mentioned this on the show, your big fear was that this was gonna to be too serious of a film, that this wasn't gonna have little pinches of humor. But where it turns out that's the mm, exact opposite. I forgot about that, yeah. There, there's so much humor injected into this, and it's funny, but then there's parts of it where it in a sense ruins a scene. It ruins the totally. it ruins uh an emotion and when a feeling towards a certain scene. And one of them being when Strange is like in his badass, he's got this badass face on. And he has, you know, the, the levitation cloak, and he pops the collar on it. And you're like, dude, oh shit, things are gonna go down. He's gonna, you know, the final battle's gonna ensue. He's gonna be serious as all hell. And then the cape wipes away something from his face. And you're like, really? You just ruined like this really badass sequence, right? Badass moment for a couple of laughs. And I'll admit there were times where I was chuckling, but then there were times where i was sitting in my chair like, this is overkill. And I think, that, yeah, very think, much so. And I think that the problem was. Is Doctor Strange for the longest time was always a very serious uh, type of, of, of series and stuff like that. From what it just had talked about and just the the characters in it, and I think that the the scale was tilted too far into the let's try to make this funny and stuff like that. And there again, there was just parts where you know I like that they made the cloak more of a sidekick really than an accessory, right? But there were just times where again you had these great moments of tension or these great moments of, of whatever and. A line or, or a certain movement would just undo all of that. There were two times
1: I laughed in this movie. The first one was when Mordo gives him the Wi Fi password.
2: Right. That He's, was funny. Question Do you think that, like, when he was filming that scene, like, for went behind that door and was like, nailed it? Yes, I think he did, because he totally did. Now, and the second
1: time I laughed was when Wong was listening to Beyonce. Yeah, that was great. And, and, and Strange was stealing the books. That was funny, too. Other than that, I kinda could've done without all the other little bits of humor because they just felt so forced. It's like, okay, this is an MCU movie. We gotta make sure it's funny. We gotta make sure our fans get a couple laughs because if they don't, they're gonna say we're DC and all this other stuff. When if you were gonna do a serious movie, this would be one of them. And I'm, and, I think Ragnarok should probably be a little bit serious, too. And now I'm thinking that's probably not going to be the case either. Oh,
2: well, Ragnarok has to be serious just because of what it's going to be become. Yeah,
1: exactly. But now I'm worried that the same thing's going to happen, that a joke's going to ruin a very serious moment, you know?
2: Yeah, I hear you. But let's get our ratings on this thing, man. And uh,
1: I'll have you go first. This one's really tough for me because there were so many things that stood out as excellent, like the portrayal of Stephen Strange, like the portrayal of Born, Baron Mordo and the ancient one and the raw emotion of the accident scene and the things that followed from that. But then there were the problems with the villain and there were the problems with characters that just seemed like the all Saran characters that didn't need to be and, and people that just seemed wasted that we discussed. So I will say, I like this better in civil war. Uh, I think that that's going to be pretty controversial. I think, I, and we'll find out if you feel the same way here in a second. Um, but they were just, I, I got a better vibe from this movie than from Civil War. And I do think that this is a, a franchise in Doctor Strange that can grow to be better over time. And I think that this could be a great second movie. I think they did a pretty good job setting the tone. But I just can't see. It's, it's hard for me because I've gone back and forth on this, but I'm going to go ahead and give it. Ah, jeez. Uh, seven head smashes from a cape out of ten.
2: <laughs> well, I'll echo what you said. I, lo- I think that from a storytelling standpoint, um, I think even just more from a character standpoint, again, outside of the villains, of course, which were, again, the problem, I think it's better than Civil War. I really do. I think that Strange, it ranks higher than Civil War does and again i know people going say oh you're crazy i mean i've already had people i posted on my personal facebook in my twitter i said that people are like oh you're crazy and i'm like no nah, not really it's my opinion you it's not like better
1: because spider-man was in it okay right,
2: right. It, it, i'm sorry it, one one airplane airport scene does not negate the fact that uh you know uh, he that, that the villain needed like all these different pieces to fall into place these 100 pieces and they somehow luckily did right um i, I will say this I, I liked, I think the castings were all perfect choices. Uh, I'm excited to see what Mordo does with Strange going forward into this, the second film. If he's going to be, I would think he's going to be the main antagonist for the second film. Um, negatively, I think that, again, the villains are weak. Uh, I think that a problem that people have are going to have too, and I think it's probably a lot of ratings that people are giving this, is that they fall too much in love with the visuals and not enough with the 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 characters and the story and, and just the stuff around it so it's, it's a big mix mash of, of things of issues and stuff like that that we talked about it wasn't a bad movie but it wasn't a great movie I, it's not a movie where i left and i lost my proverbial shit over it where i'm like oh my god it's the best thing ever i'm gonna give this eight out of ten glittered eyeballs <laughs> that's hey that's fair man that's fair but that's going to do it with our review of Doctor Strange. We come next with a bunch of nerd news. And as I mentioned, Fox looks to be hitting the reboot button on their x franchise. What does that mean? Find out next. Hey, this is comic book writer
1: Steve Orlando, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Well, nerds, it's time to grow around the internet and see what's trending, because it's time for what, James? Nerd, nerd, nerd news. news! And I want to preface by saying this. We don't like talking about court stuff. We don't like talking about legal battles. We try our best to stay away from it. But this one was too big to ignore.
1: Yep, and it's because it involves something we've talked about quite a lot on this show, which is Wizard World, you know, the cons that are across the country. And their executive, Stephen Sheamus has been fired and hit with a lawsuit that alleges he's has $1 million plus in stolen items and illicit autographs and memorabilia. And now, Nick, when you first saw this story, what was your initial reaction?
2: This makes sense. This makes sense as to why Wizard World was constantly losing money because if you read the court documents and the stories that are out there, he was negotiating terrible deals that were anti-Wizard World. So, for example, he would be like, okay, we're going to pay this person so much money, like, you know, a you know, blank check to come for Wizard World. And again, it, it negated how much they maybe could have spent. But he did it because he's like, hey, if we can get a big name here, I can get this person's autograph. And I can sell it and keep for my own personal gain. And that's what he did. And, and not just him, but he also had, as this thing lists out, 10 people that were helping him. These are John
1: Doe's that are listed, by the way. They know who they are. They just haven't named them yet. And again, remember, this is all allegations that are in the lawsuit. First, This was first reported by Bleeding Cool. But I agree with you, man. This makes perfect sense. We saw all these stories about Wizard World losing money and possibly going bankrupt. And and them cutting down on their right. cons. Right, exactly. And now all of a sudden you see this and you go, oh... Well, now that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, it does, because if you're a CEO, if the guy that's running everything has been skimming off the top, and I know that and, and you, people will say, well, a million dollars doesn't seem like a lot That's for a lot. World. First that's time. a lot of money. I'm sorry. It's still a comic book convention company. You're not making billions upon billions of dollars. This isn't SDCC when you're going to, like, Iowa and stuff like that. Love our fans in Iowa. But you're not San Diego, and you know it. And same thing with us, up the road for us, Richmond. You're not San Diego, and you know it. So if you're losing a million dollars right off the top, a million dollars plus, by the way, there's no final number on this yet. So it could end up being more, again, allegedly. But... It makes a lot of sense. It's like you said, why they were losing money, why they were dropping out of certain cities, why guests started dropping out at the last minute for right. certain cons. All of these things are suddenly starting to add up. And now the big question is, if
2: you Wizard wrong, where do you go from here? Well, I, with anything like this, as big of a, a scandal, as big of, of a thing. And again, this is not only the guy at the top, this is also 10 other people as well that helped him along the way. This is a time for healing for Wizard World. This is a time for them to grab the reins or somebody to step up and grab the reins. And I think what we're going to see is we're going to see, I think, more from just not just from a business perspective, but just from running running a business perspective yeah. as, you know, when people say, okay, well, who's going to take this guy's role? Who's going to step in? Who's going to take over these other people's roles? I think that there's going to be a lot more strict Guidelines when it comes to employees of Wizard World, even when I think it comes to volunteers, I think this is going to put a very, very strict thing on people because I think there's going to probably, you're probably going to see a thing like in a contract or something that people are going to have to sign now that says if Mm -hmm. you get an autograph. And you work for Wizard World, or your name's on file for a volunteer in Wizard World. You cannot resell right. an autograph that you get or anything you get at the
1: con. Or make it this much better: make everything have to be personalized, because right. in the world of collecting, if you're a collector, you know the second somebody writes two in your name on it, it's toast as far as value is concerned. Right. It's just you're done. That that automatically cuts the value at least in half, and that's why a lot of celebrities. When you, you know, catch them, like, out in public and stuff like that, if you, they're generous enough to give you an autograph,
2: they will personalize it right. because they don't want you selling it, nor should you. Right, and, and I think, again, I think that if you're Wizard World, like, knowing – even if you're, you're me personally – Listen, I we've both been hard on Wizard World, and for rightfully so, for a long time. But this, I, I reach an olive branch out to Wizard World. Totally. And I say, I understand. I see what you, I because we didn't know this was going on no. until uh, what was it Sunday when you you know messaged me in this story. So I look at this and I'm like, guys, I get it. Like, and like I said, my, my hope is – the thing is we have to understand is we don't want things like Wizard World and you know, Comic-Con International and stuff like that to fail. No, we, absolutely We not. want it to succeed because if you think about it, if those go away, nerd culture is going to take a hit. Yep. Like it's going to take a serious hit. So we need these things to be stronger and, and to survive and to grow. But I think that what this is, you're cutting out the cancer. You found the cancer. Yep. Sure, it was late, but you're getting rid of it. And and that's why I think uh, Wizard World's doing right now. And I hope this leads to again. We, we were talking about how this is what you know why Wizard World tickets were expensive. This is why autographs were expensive, ridiculously are,
1: so. Yeah, because
2: odds are, I don't think that. I mean, we kind of know the inner workings of pricing, but really, I don't think it's it's the actors and the, and the guests that that you know really, for the most part. Uh, choose their their pricing. Well, I think it's more the con maybe.
1: Their prices where their where they are and what the con adds on on top of that, we don't know that discrepancy. Right. So right. that's where your point comes in. Okay, so let's say uh Star A decides that they want to charge 35 dollars per autograph okay well now what's the con gonna charge right because that's what they're getting in the contract now how much is the con getting on top of that and everybody should make money i'm not saying they shouldn't make money but what was the discrepancy there because and how much greed was involved with this cast of characters and i really do hope now this is something that If they do it right and they do it swiftly, they can recover from quickly because their nerd culture culture is still at an all-time high. You can recover from this, put the right people in place, and in a couple of years, you could probably recoup your losses and be right back towards the top again. But you got to do it right, and you got to act fast.
2: Before we move on to our next story, one thing I really want to quickly say is that I really hope too that there's more transparency coming from this as well, not just totally. with world, but just with every con as well. From you know people who go to the con, you know attendees, media, uh, and guests. You know, I, I want there to be a huge level of transparency. Now, of course. It's nobody's right who's an attendee or whomever to know what a person's making by going to a con. But I, I think that, you know, you would hope it from the business aspect from when it says, the, you know, sending out the invite to a person and say, hey, can you come and sit behind a booth and, and sign stuff or whatever. I hope there's more transparency in that. And I think that we hopefully get that. I hope it causes prices at Wizard World to go down. But mm-hmm. moving on to our next story, Fox. And again, we mentioned this. Earlier in the last segment, well, Fox, you know, Logan's getting ready to come out in March. And as far as the X-Men movies, we don't know what's gonna happen, so they're getting ready. I think they already have been or talk about hitting that reboot button.
1: Yep, and that's according to the Hollywood reporter talking about how there's been problems. That 20th Century Fox has had with some of the franchises lately, and I mean, you want to talk about the ebb and flow, up and down of the X Men franchise. You go from the high of Days of Future Past, and then you almost come crashing down with X Men Apocalypse, and then you have such a huge success with Deadpool. And we have no idea what to expect from Logan or the New Mutants movies that are going to be coming out. So when you hear the words reboot, you go, especially when it comes to the X Men franchise, you're going, ah, oh,
2: again. Yeah, you know? I mean, well, here's the thing. And this is a franchise that's been going on what, X1 was what, 1998, 1999? Something like that, yeah. Something like that. It's been going on for almost 20 years, basically. So, I think after a certain amount of years, maybe you should reboot it. I think that, and they've, there's been reports that they're hoping that the whole New Mutants thing causes that to change, and that, that's, their, that's their jumping off point. And, what, and I think what I, I think the problem is, too, is that You've had people like Jennifer Lawrence and Fassbender and uh, and other people, you know, say, "Hey, you know, unless all three of us are coming back, none of us are coming back." But again, that's very expensive because Jennifer Lawrence is like what? 20, yeah, especially million. for her. Yeah, yeah, because she's like twenty to twenty-two million dollars a picture now and stuff like that since she won the Oscar. So I mean, it, it's 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 gonna be pricey. Like you know, in order you gotta think about this in order to the movies have to crack $100 million just to pay three actors, pretty much. To make yeah,
1: up for paying three actors. And that's
2: really difficult. Now, maybe you choose
1: which X- X-Men you use more wisely, but, I mean, it, it seemed like what they wanted to do with Apocalypse was take these younger cast of characters and move on from that. And I think they were also have, had higher hopes for Gambit, which may or may not ever happen now. Uh, I think that Logan can't really help this because Logan is absolutely positively a conclusion well, here's- to Hugh Jackman's story. So it's like, okay, you want a soft reboot, it's fine. But if you think you're going to be able to reboot it and go forward with the new mutants, uh-uh.
2: Well, uh, here's the thing. Logan, I think, will help the reboot thing because I think Logan really, if you think about it, Logan should, because in the trailer, he's like, mutants are gone. They're dead. You know, stuff like that. This is a great way for them to close out this entire franchise, and then if you want to do a hard reboot, start anew, wait a few years, you know, until you have to give the rights back and say, okay, this year we got to make a movie, let's do it. But Logan, I think, is a great point and a great place to end this franchise because, again, mutants are gone. Logan's pretty much the last one there. It's going to start, off, you know, it could kick off new mutants. Who knows? But my hope out of all of this is that they they wait a longer time to do anything with Wolverine. I don't want Wolverine to be part really of anything if they're gonna reboot it because it's like it's mostly just out of respect to Hugh Jackman because it's yeah. like give him a good five to seven years where he can right. just you know bask in this this Wolverine you know, post-retirement thing, you know?
1: And if you want to use X-23, fine. I've got no problem with that. I actually th- I actually hope they kind of do... Right. ...kind of transition to an X-23 thing for a little bit. And if you're going to do that, use her. And I actually think, to your point, the success of Deadpool allows Fox to let the X-Men franchise lay dormant for a little bit. Right, because... If you didn't have Deadpool, and they're talking about already thinking about Deadpool 3 and X-Force coming in, stuff like that, okay, if that's the plan... Then let's do what you suggest. Let's let the X-Men lay low for 5 years. Let's wait and then you just recast everybody. Don't do a soft reboot. Just do a hard reboot. Let you use new mutants and Deadpool and whatever you want to do to bridge that gap because you know it's going to be like an every couple of years kind of thing. It should be easy to wait 5 years and even though we love the X-Men and it's one of the biggest properties arguably the biggest property that Marvel has, depending on what generation you grew right. up in. Uh, you want them to come back, but you want it to be done right. So if you're going to reboot it, I don't know if a soft reboot's the
2: answer. Or you might do what you suggest and just let it lie for a while. Well, think about who Deadpool's going to be putting in here now. He's going to be putting Cable, who, as we all know, goes through time. Yep. So, their new reboot can be Cable does something through time or whatever like that, and it just, it's like a new, like a, like an Earth 2 pretty much scenario kind of thing, you know, to use a, a DC term and stuff like that. You know, it, it's like he opens up something and then there's a no different world and then you just go from there. Yeah, and it doesn't stop you from bringing an X-Men character into the Deadpool world and using them. It's just, I think that when you have a franchise that's been going on since, like, 2000, you know, 1999 era... It was 2000, yeah, you're right, it was 2000. Yeah, Yeah, when you have a, a franchise that started 16 or so years ago... There's got to be a point where you can say, "Okay, we got to close the book on this, separate it, and go to the next, you know, page or the next chapter, if you will."
1: I feel like they thought they did, though, when they when they started with first class, and they made everybody younger. I think they felt like they did, and then Days of Future Past are going, "All right, now we're going to hit the ground running," and then Apocalypse ha- Apocalypse see, and They're like, "Well, shit,
2: you, we'll see." Days of Future Past would have been the perfect way to do a new mutant spin off or to do like a different thing. Cause that's when you pretty much erased everything that happened with that right, stand. Right. So, you know, Jean Grey was back. Cyclops is back. You could say, okay, new thing. Now let's carry on to this. So even though it would be a reboot, it'd be more seen as a continuation. And so, I mean, that's, the, that's the type of thing I got to look at, man. But again, we'll see what they do with it. I hope that they don't fuck it up, but I mean, these are just some ideas I would like to see them do moving forward with that that um, IP. But our last story, James, stays within the Marvel Universe because we're talking about Ace of S.H.I.E.L.D. and things aren't looking so good. No,
1: and if you... I mean, it's, as a fan, you don't pay attention to the ratings, really. I mean, we know that everybody's
2: got the internet and you can look this stuff up, but, I, th- I, I th- mean, th- come on, you know? I think that people... The only time people pay attention to the ratings is when a petition signed to save a show right, and bring exactly. it back. That's, like that's the only time people people say, pay attention to the ratings, really. That, now, that aren't us. Now,
1: much. I'm going to take you back to three weeks ago when Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. had only 2.3 million total viewers. That's a 0. .7 rating in the in the money demo, which is, of course, 1849. And that's final demos, people. That includes DVR's Stuff like that. That is series lows, guys. And it was third
2: in its time slot. Third. That can't happen. Not only that, but you have Gabriel Luna talking about, you know, hey, we might take Ghost Rider to Netflix. So... And and this is the thing, too. And this is why I'm not freaking... If S.H.I.E.L.D., there's been talks of it possibly getting canceled by ABC. If S.H.I.E.L.D. does get canceled by ABC... They can bring it into the Netflix realm, I would think. Absolutely they can. Because Marvel's got the partnership with Netflix. So it's like, hey, do you want to do this? And again, you know, we'll see what happens with that. Now, it's going to be interesting to see, okay, you're bringing in S.H.I.E.L.D. Now, how does that tie into this world that Netflix already has created with the Defenders and Luke Cage and stuff like that? Which would be interesting because you got to think about this too. This would change the entire structure Of Agents of Shield because instead of getting like ten to twenty two episodes, whatever it is a season, they're getting like twelve, you know, a season or thirteen a season, and they're going to be releasing Shield episodes every six months or every other year. Couldn't you condense this though? You think? Don't you think you could condense
1: Shield into thirteen episodes if you really wanted to? I mean, look what Lucifer did with limited episodes last year.
2: To be honest, I really wish that uh, I wish that a lot of TV shows, in fact, all TV shows, did what does what, like, BBC does and make it 8 to 10 episodes or 13 at the most. Because, I would go 13. I'd go 13. Yeah, and I think that it depends on what the, what the show is. I mean, like Oh, totally. Look, like, you look at, like, Netflix, like, Stranger Things. Stranger Things works at 8 episodes. Yes. It's perfect. Yes. Uh, a show like Luke Cage or Jessica Jones and Daredevil works at a good 12 to 13 episodes. So, yeah, I think that if you cut that in half, I think that would be better because it's a whole lot of filler. It's a whole lot of filler you got to cut out.
1: I mean, and, and and look at it this way. Look what uh, Legends of Tomorrow did with a limited amount of episodes last season as well. Like you said, some shows just work with limited episodes, and would we would we would love to have seen more than thirteen episodes of Lucifer in season one. Absolutely, we'll be talking to Kevin Alejandro later on in the show about the, what, what's been happening on Lucifer season two, but it worked as 13 episodes in that first season. And there are episodes, even though Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the last two seasons, been pretty darn good. But there are episodes every now and then where you go, I could have done without that. Right. You know, that didn't really... While it wasn't a bad episode, it didn't really further the story any. So if that was out of here, or if they put part of that in one episode and combined these two, I think they could have done that. Now, I, I guess they could also do that on ABC... But I mean, look at look at what's been happening. the The boulders rolling down the hill. They were going to do Marvel's Most Wanted. Now they're not going to do that. You bring Ghost Rider in because you're trying to get people's attention, and you're kind of starting to go away from the. It almost seems like they are starting to go away from the Inhumans thing a little bit too. So now it's like, okay, it, it's every time you feel like they've got a good thing going. It starts to kind of go away, and I'm not saying I don't like the Ghost Rider thing I do, but if you're already talking about him bailing to Netflix, that doesn't exactly inspire much confidence in the show.
2: Well, if you look at the show, I think that people are looking at S.H.I.E.L.D., and I think they're seeing that, and they're going, <sighs> like, yeah, Ghost Rider's in it, but the still the main story is about S.H.I.E.L.D. rebooting, and, you know, Daisy and stuff like that. Ghost Rider's there, but I think that people have been clamoring. I think still for like. Cause remember, one of the problems, one of the issues I had with Ghost Rider and Shield this year was just like his. You know the way he, you know he he kills people, and we can't see that. We we see like a cell getting lit on fire, but we you know what I'm saying like right. There's from a from a certain aspect to get that real brutality of Ghost Rider. I think it would fit on Netflix because you got to think of like who else is in you know Ghost Riders. You know, catalog. I believe like Black Hearts in there and stuff like that. So I mean, you got to look at like all these other people that are in his villain catalog. And you're like, yeah, he could probably stand out in his own in a sense. But I mean, again, it's be interesting to see within the next year, what possibly six months, what they do with Ghost Rider. And that's what I think it all depends on. If Ghost Rider jumps ship and goes to Netflix then I think that S.H.I.E.L.D. might be biting its time. Is this 10 o'clock time slot switch not, oh, not working for that. them? Oh, yeah, that's what's killing them. Because the the thing is, people who you know, I pay attention to TV ratings and, and stuff like that, and as well you do, but if you notice, things that are on 10 o'clock on ABC, they fail. Yep. That's not a good time slot. 10 o'clock at night, it's not a good time slot at all. And I think that the move to the later time... I understand they did it because they want to make, you know, we got a Ghost Rider, we want to make things darker. But to be honest, the stuff they're doing this season, I'm like, does it warrant the 10 o'clock later time start? To not really. Because they're not really the most, no. you know, malicious things you're showing people.
1: I, we're, again, it's we're trying too hard to not offend anybody, I guess, or or, or, or become that, that negative news story with some of the stuff they're doing. But I agree with you. That's not really happening. And 10 o'clock unless you are really killing it, that's hard, man. I mean, that's a really hard thing to try and do. And I mean, you you look at some of this other stuff that's on 10 o'clock that same night. There's competition there. And you can't just assume you're going to you're going to do well just because it's a Marvel property because that hasn't been the case in the past for Agents of Shield. It's not like they've been a world beater for for four or five for for like four years now. So you got to keep that in mind, too. I'm not saying that they they were setting the show up to fail, but it sure as heck seemed like they just kept trying to throw things out
2: there to try and make it survive. Yeah, man. But, again, we're going to see what happens in the next few months. Again, we know people that work on the shows, and we just hope that, you know, we just want – You know, the show, I think, really, it's hit its stride, really, for the past couple of seasons. I think that it's been really at a strong point. Um, so, I mean – Hey, you know we we hope everything works out. But come next, as James mentioned, we're be sitting down with Detective Dan Espinosa, aka Detective Douche, as you know him on Lucifer on Fox. Because Kevin Alejandro is going to be coming on, talking to us about the season two of Lucifer.
0: Hello, this is Tom Ellis from Lucifer on Fox, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Well, I think Nick and I would agree that this past week's episode of Lucifer was one of the best ever. So we're so glad to have the man himself who plays Detective Dan Espinosa on the show every Monday night at 9 o'clock on Fox. It's Kevin Alejandro. Kevin, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. so, Thank you so much for
0: having me.
1: Oh, no problem. We've been looking forward to having you on the show. As a matter of fact, let's go back to last season for just a second. One of the shocking moments for me was when Dan kind of fell on the sword and took responsibility for his role and everything that happened with Malcolm and Chloe's partner and everything like that. So aside from the demotion heading into season two, how much did that carry over with him mentally? Once
0: you keep that character, once the writers um, the took Dan into that sort of, you know, Peter's on... Um teetering on, uh, you know, moral, moral, moral values and, you know, what he thinks is right. I think it's opened up a whole loophole and a whole world for them to take in and, you know, have him become this character of always struggling with what the right decision is to do, either morally or, you know, for his heart, you know, and what, what, he, what he truly believes. So I think it's opened up a world of possibilities, and they uh, are really looking up to that. I mean, you'll, you'll find throughout this season that, you know, once again, Dan is faced with you know, certain decisions that he has to make and is it right? I mean, in one aspect it is, whatever decision he makes. And then in the other aspect, it's it's, it's not. So, you know, it's a sort of catch from two sort of situation that you're going to find him in this
2: season. And, you know, Kevin, one week Lucifer and Dan are reminiscing together over classic kung fu movies, and then a week later Lucifer punches Dan squarely in the face. So what makes the relationship such an interesting tightrope to walk? Well, you know, what a uh, great
0: the good dynamic between the characters of Lucifer and Dan are just how completely polar opposites they are. You know, Dan is tight, tight and He he tries to play by the book. He sort of, sort of square. You know, he has, he has his own, his, his own troubles. and Lucifer is sort of, a, you know, go with the flow, do what you want, feel how you feel. You know, and um, you know, they're just, they're just, their their values just sort of conflict. And I, and I think that when they when they find a similarity between each other, it's a genuine sort of like surprise and like, you know, wow, I can, I can really connect to you and then all of a sudden the pitch of a drop of the hat will make you great But because they're so opposite and they aspect, like they can also switch and they'll be like, you know, you're a freaking idiot. So let me punch you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> <you know? laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, we've got to get to what happened in this past week's episode, and I think one of the most hilarious moments on the show ever was Dan's improv of Lucifer. So i got to ask, how much fun was that scene to shoot, and did Tom know how you were going to portray Lucifer Morningstar in that scene? Uh, you know what? He had no
0: idea what I was going to be. I had no idea what I was going to do, honestly. Um, but he did help me uh, figure out his accent a little bit. Which was awesome, um, and just one of the great things that I love about being part of this whole group of players and and uh, you know crew and writers and, and just the whole group of people so is it us uh, they give us the opportunities to just play around. So you know, what um, I, I, I did I did a whole bunch of different ways, but I went I went just as hard on him, and he went on me because you know he was, watching me, he was copying me the whole the whole episode as well. So I decided to say that ain't a been a more realistic. Version and I like I like sort of uh, the different things that uh, Todd and director ended up putting together, um, but uh, we had so much fun to sort of making fun of each other. And you know what? By doing that too, we learned a lot about each other's technique. And you know, he's like, you know, I've noticed. Um, more than Tom said when me was, there, you know, I noticed by analyzing you and and um, trying to copy you that you have a very John Travolta walk." <laughs> <laughs>
2: Now you're going to be home sitting sitting and watching the show and like analyzing your walk like you know what I do walk like John Travolta I do walk like John Travolta I can actually
0: hear like you know some some music from Greece going on in my head as I walk <laughs> 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 when, when, when he was when actually trying to put together that walk you know,
1: he was like, you know, you to go both
0: the things that on. And I said, like, no, no, honestly, all you got to do, are you, are you got to think about when you're playing Dan, Because every step and every little move
2: that you make, just think the word douche. So it's like douche, douche. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, douche. <God>. Well, <laughs> staying on this week's episode, you know, Kev, we saw not only how Chloe and Dan first met, but also Dan referring to her late father as a legendary figure. How much of his caring for and protecting of her do you think is tied to him not wanting to let something like, you know, something bad happen and let her late father
0: down? I think, uh, and I hope I'm, I'm answering this correctly, but I think that, uh, you know, obviously Chloe's father had such a huge respect in the department, and I think you know the storyline that they're, that they're introducing and in the backstory, um, is a huge part in the progression of this uh, of, of, of us as human beings and why we connect so much. And I think because we have so much respect for her and for him, and because they have so much history, um, there's always going to be a, a really strong bond between them. No matter you know, nothing can come between that bond. You know, other uh, you know, aside from 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 the physical and uh, you know the relationship aspect of a husband and wife, they're also great friends and they have great respect for each other. Um, so it becomes, you know, like a challenge when someone comes in and sort of threatens that a little bit. But in the end, you'll find that uh, there's nothing that either one of them won't do for each other, you know. Um, and, I, and I love that, uh, that they've that they introduced this backstory because, you know, it's just an ongoing thing. And um, and it really gives uh, everyone a chance to sort of understand where the world comes from.
1: Absolutely. We're talking to Kevin Alejandro, who plays Detective Dan Espinosa on Lucifer on Fox, which you can watch every Monday night at nine o'clock. Now, Kevin, I'm sure that, you know, we all, we can all agree that Detective Douche isn't really the most flattering nickname in the world. And I'm sure you've got a lot of fans that, that call you that offset. Now, since you all seem to have so much fun as a cast together, does anyone have any off-camera nicknames that you could share
0: with us? Any off-camera nicknames? Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how it started, uh, but Tom and Lauren are called Muffin for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> on their on their trailer doors, it'll be Muffin in red, which is Lauren, and Muffin pop in black, and also Tom. So somehow <laughs> the word <laughs> somehow they known as Muffin.
2: Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, it is the best part of the muffin, so. <laughs> and, you know, you know, Kev, this week Lucifer also attended the School of Dan. So if you taught a style class, what would you name it and how would you grade your students? Well, I would, first of all,
0: I would call it, for what I call it, this is a good word. We'll call it. Learning to douche. The school of douche. <laughs> <laughs> you to do- to do the school of douche. Welcome <laughs> to the school of douche. And the first thing you're gonna to have to work on is your douche walk, obviously. I would I would grade them on I would grade them on their ability not to laugh at everything that Tom does. <laughs> I would bring Tom out into the studio. And I would make everyone do a scene with him and try and dare them not to laugh because he's so freaking funny. And
1: try to be straight with that (laughs) guy. Well, I'm taking that class. I'm telling you that right now. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Well, Kevin, back to the show for a second. There have been a lot of redeeming moments for Dan this season. But just like last season, I still kind of have that feeling that there's something we don't know about him, that something's up. So are, are there any surprises coming that fan, can, fans can expect in future episodes this season? 100% accurate, my friend.
0: There's, uh, there's some things that happen that you're going to be genuinely surprised about. Um, uh, and again, you know, he's going to be faced with a really hard decision. Um, and it, it'll be up to you guys to decide whether or not he, he makes the right choice again. Um, I, I, I think I think what the writers like to do is to watch Ben squirm. You can watch him go through situations and and, and and see if he can reason his way out of it.
2: And Kevin, before we let you get you out of here, man, you know we had Joe Henderson, of course, as everybody knows, is the showrunner for Lucifer on the show before last season premiered, and we asked him about that writers' room, and he said that it's you know more of a melting pot of people from different writing backgrounds and different styles. So, as an actor, what's it like working on a show that has a room like that? Oh man, it's, it's
0: fantastic, actually. You know, because I mean, they're all they're all basically. Like us, you know, they know these characters so well, um, and because they know us as as, as individuals so well too, that they're starting to incorporate a lot of our own sort of personality, you know, little personality uh, course, to it. And you know, I, I, I think you know we start to something slightly different with the way they write and the way you know you hear a little bit of their different voices in it. And I think it's a great challenge, you know, to you know for all of us, and because we all like each other so much, we're all willing to work. Work with and and uh, collaborate with each other, um, and you know this project is so great and funny and gracious. And uh, I said super, super positive because I am. Um, but we all genuinely love what we're doing. You know, we some we to put together this this show, and you know, to have fun and not realizing what a, what a great success it is. It's going to be, and I, I think we're a huge success. And I think that people are appreciating that we know what we are as a show, that we don't take ourselves too seriously, that we have fun. And I think that really highlights everyone's performances uh, and everyone's uh, everyone's abilities um, and what they bring to the table. You know, from the writers to the crew to the actors, and I, and I think it's just such a well-balanced uh, project to be part of.
1: Absolutely. And if you want to attend the School of Dan and learn the art of the douche, make sure you're watching Lucifer every Monday night at 9 o'clock on Fox. We're so happy to have Detective Dan Espinoza on this week. It's Kevin Alejandro. Thank you so much for joining us this week, man.
0: Thank you so much, man. I look forward to hearing everyone's talk after this next episode is coming up on Monday night because uh, uh, you're going to you're gonna get to see a true square-off between uh, the character of uh, Dan Espinoza and Lucifer Morningstar. So i be interested to hear what
2: people think about that. You know, James, if I was to have my own school, I would have to teach a class on how to unsuccessfully climb trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty difficult for you. Step one, wrap your arms around trees. Step two, put your, uh, your foot <laughs> of the tree. Step three, Slide down and hit your defeat and just cry and weep. It's like, you know, climbing a tree as a water man is like putting IKEA furniture together. It's very frustrating. It's sad. And it's just, at some point, you say, fuck this, and you're just to feel defeated and you decide you want to do something else. Step four, Ah. <laughs> Step five, life is worthless.
1: Somebody pick this man up. He's suffered enough. <laughs>
2: It was really fun, man, talking, of course, to Kevin Alejandro from Lucifer on Fox, aka Detective Dan Espinosa, or as Lucifer calls him, Detective Douche. And I'm gonna just throw this out there right now. I don't know how realistic
1: this is. But I think we need to get John Travolta to play Dan's dad on the show now. <laughs> You know, I mean, even if it's for an episode, we've had Chloe's dad. Now we need Dan's dad, and it now needs to be John Travolta. We need to have a scene where they do like a side by side slow walk kind of thing <laughs> for a
2: comparison. I think that would be great. They're <laughs> dressed like the same way. It's just walking. Oh, um, right. We need to. We need to. I mean, we know Joe personally. You know, we know Tom personally, and DB, and everybody else on the show personally. So we should just like you know get a hold of them you know, after the show i be like, hey guys, here's an I'm, idea. I'm emailing Joe right now. Yeah. Like that's oh, yeah. what I'm doing right now. Yeah, we're we're gonna email Joe and I know you're you'll email him and say, hey Joe, uh, here's an idea. <laughs> so here's what we think.
1: I mean Travolta's doing T V now. He was just Bob Shapiro yeah. on the people vs. OJ Simpson. Come on, Johnny, come on Lucifer for an episode.
2: And hey he's you know if you want to do musical you can you know he wasn't hairspray, so it's true. You, do, you know, hey, making a musical Thing, I don't know. Maybe that's why Dan gets in the improv, because his dad was part of musical theater, so Dan maybe wanna get hey. You never of, know. so sort of sort of a thing, but I mean as we always... Just, did we just write half this episode. I think we did. I think we <laughs> <just> wrote half. <laughs> we did. It's like a <laughs> But you know what's gonna be funny is that we're gonna listen to this show afterwards people listen to the show and be like that was a horrible goddamn idea. Well
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> whose idea was that and then they can blame us and it's okay. And okay. I try pointing at you my stub but the people can't see because it's too short to point really. Right, it's exactly. like, <laughs> it's like, like I put my arm out but it's like, like a wall is blocking like a pillar is blocking it.
0: <laughs> so I
2: can't assign blame. <laughs> and that's gonna do it for this week's edition of the down and nerdy podcast and thanks to our friends over at fox and the wonderfully awesome kevin alejandro and be sure to again watch him nine o'clock monday nights lucifer on fox but hey if you want more of us on the web we're at facebook.com slash down and nerdy we're also on twitter at downnerdy757 i'm at Merck with one arm the one is spelled out same thing for the instagram as well James, where can I find you, my goatee douche-tastic friend?
1: Well, I'm not on the Instagram, but I am on the Twitter at James Ace Witham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. And you want to get all that information, you could do it. com. Listen to this week's show. You can Purchase episodes of Lucifer right from our Amazon store and Amazon Instant. And you can read the other comic book reviews that we have. Just We don't just review them on the show. We do them on the website as well. I reviewed
2: Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number four. And, Nick, you did what exactly? I did Grand Passion number one from Dynamite Comics, a new high slash love story. So be sure to check out both our reviews at Nerdypodcast.com. And with that being said, practice safe comic book reading and always bag and board your comics. And work on that douche walk.